Higgins this summer, one little boy going out said to me, Mr. Higgins, you know, my favorite time of meeting is at the end when you say, shall we pray? So I'm hoping that there will be something before I say, shall we pray, that will be a help. I'd like to read with you just one passage. It is in the Old Testament, First Chronicles chapter 12. First Chronicles chapter 12. And verse 16. And there came of the children of Benjamin and Judah to the hold unto David. And David went out to meet them and answered and said unto them, If ye be come peaceably unto me to help me, mine heart shall be knit unto you. But if ye be come to betray me to mine enemies, seeing there is no wrong in mine hands, the God of our fathers looked thereon and rebuke it. Then the spirit came upon Amasai, who was chief of the captains, and he said, Thine are we, David, and on thy side, thou son of Jesse. In some ways, that's like um, an Old Testament version of what Paul said on the ship in Acts chapter 27, when he said, Whose I am and whom I serve. The God whose I am and whom I serve, they're confessing those two same things. Thine are we, David, we belong to you, and we serve you. We're on your side, thou son of Jesse. Peace, peace be unto thee, and peace be to thine helpers, for thy God helpeth thee. Then David received them and made them captains of the band. I'd like to ask you to think with me for a few minutes tonight about the subject of commitment. Commitment. Is there anything to which you are committed wholeheartedly? Let me rephrase that. Is there anything beside fishing, golf, your work, or your family that you are committed to wholeheartedly? Now, some commitments in life are small. If I said to you, I will meet you for lunch, that would be just a small commitment on your part or my part. On the other hand, some commitments in life are large. So when a man or woman promises for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, in sickness or in health, that is a large commitment. Some commitments in life are short-term. I have a two-year Verizon contract, short-term. Some commitments in life are long-term. I have a lifetime commitment to a woman named Nancy. Some commitments in life are easy. If you said, I'm cooking tonight, can you come for dinner? That's easy. I would be happy to come. Some commitments in life are hard. If I said to you, I'm cooking tonight, will you come? That would be a very hard commitment on your part. So there's all kinds of different commitments. But there's something about the passionate earnestness of Amasai's speech here. In fact, if you leave out the words that are in italics, you'll catch him saying, thine. He's answering quickly. You will remember now that they're from Benjamin. And Benjamin was the tribe from which Saul came. And so David is probing them for their loyalty. Are they actually spies? Have they come to spy to turn him over to his enemies? Because they're Benjamites and they say, we're yours. We belong to you and we've come to serve you. We're on your side. God is helping you. So maybe it would be helpful for you tonight and me if we just kind of reminded ourselves for a moment what commitment is not. Commitment is not casual. 
That's like the guest or boarder mentality. If you have a boarder staying with you in your house and the roof leaks, he's not concerned about the welfare of the house. He's concerned about whether the roof is leaking where his things are. He's not concerned about the big picture, right? Because he's just a boarder. So there's just a, a casual interest. The big thing in his mind is his welfare, not the house's welfare or the family's welfare. That's not commitment. Commitment is not a temporary interest. That's like a, the hitchhiker's mentality. So you pick up the hitchhiker, which you shouldn't do, by the way. You pick up the hitchhiker. He's just along for the ride. It's a temporary convenience, and he makes no contribution to the insurance, to the oil, to the gas, to the maintenance of the car. You and the hitchhiker get along really great as long as your paths are heading in the same direction. But the moment that where you want to go and where he wants to go diverge, he's out of here. And you've seen people that way, haven't you, with their commitment to God's things. The moment that God points one way and their interests go another way, they're out. And a lot of times they'll tell you they don't even think God has left them the place anymore. But that's not commitment. Commitment is a deep and enduring giving of yourself. Synonyms for it are to consecrate, to devote, to dedicate, to guarantee, to pledge. Remember the old expression when a man and a woman were married that they would plight their troth whatever in the world your trough is, that they were vowing to be faithful regardless of other circumstances. And if it is a healthy marriage, then it is marked by unconditional love and commitment to each other. Paul put it this way when he wrote to Timothy, give yourself, give yourself wholly to these things. Here's your work to do for God, Timothy. Now, now give yourself, not spend some time dabbling in this, but throw yourself into it. In the 2010 Vancouver Olympics, Lindsay Vaughn won the gold in the woman's downhill skiing. You may remember her statement when she won that medal. She said, I have given up everything for this. It means everything to me. That's commitment. Whether you judge that her commitment was wise or not, that's commitment. I have given up everything for this. This means everything to me. So when it comes to commitment, have we ever committed ourselves to God's things with this kind of unconditional, enduring, wholehearted commitment? Now, time out. We make a mistake. Start right up here. We make a mistake drawing a line and deciding... That there are things in our life that are sacred, and there are things in our life that are secular. That line is fictional. That line is imaginary. When Paul wrote to the slaves in Ephesians and Colossians, he told them, you serve the Lord Christ. You serve the Lord Christ. You will receive a reward of the inheritance. Do you see what he is saying? That there was no part of their life. It wasn't that they were involved in sacred things on Sunday. But then from, from Monday to Saturday, they were involved in working for their master. So there was nothing sacred about what they were doing. Wherever you are working, whatever you are doing, whatever calling you are in, whatever vocation may be yours, whether you are at school or at the office or driving a bus or sweeping floors or packing lunches, furrying the kids around from one place to another. Christianity allows you to take every moment of your life and dedicate it. Do it as unto the Lord. And turn it into something that has eternal value. So are we committed to God's things? So I really want to answer just two further questions. 
First of all, why should I commit myself? Why should, why should, why should we commit ourselves? I mean, we all have enough in our own lives to keep us busy. So why should we make a commitment to God's things? And then the second question is, how can that be accomplished? Let's rethink the relationship for a moment. Amasai says to David, Thine are we. Now he is saying, of course, we're your men. We've come here for you. We belong to you. We're not Saul's men. We're your men. We're going to wear your livery. We're going to pledge allegiance to you. You will be our liege lord and we will labor for you. Thine are we. Now you belong to the Lord Jesus. You're his property. He bought you. When Aaron and his sons were consecrated to the Lord, you will remember that the blood was placed on their right ear, on their thumb, and on their toe. And that set them apart. It pictures redemption and its claims on my being and my body. Wherever that blood was put, the idea was, now this belongs to God. What I listen to, what I do, where I go, it should all be consistent with the fact that I am redeemed. God was claiming them. Think about what a great privilege that is. Because Calvary means that you're His. You belong to Him. So think about what a great privilege that is. You are his sheep. That means you're being brought home safely. On his shoulders, you will never perish. You are eternally secure. It's a great privilege to be one of his sheep, to belong to him. It's a great privilege to be one of his disciples. To be one of his sheep means you're being brought home. To be one of his disciples means that you're brought near. He would take the disciples aside, he would bring them near to himself, and then he would expound to them what he had said to the crowd that that the multitude couldn't understand. So being one of his disciples meant that you were brought near to him, to learn from him, to grasp truth that the world could not grasp. When they were alone, he expounded unto them all things. Great privilege. It's a great privilege to be his servant. To be his servant, and we're all his servants. We're all the servants of the Lord. And of course there is something both temporal and eternal about that, isn't there? The Lord Jesus said, if any man honor me, my father will honor him. If any man serve me, him will my father honor. And yet the book of Revelation tells us how eternal it is. His servants shall serve him and they shall see his face. So we will serve the Lord forever. Just as we are serving him now, we will serve him then, only free from restraints and failures and sin. So it's a great privilege, isn't it? To be his sheep, to be his disciple, to be his servant. It's also a great responsibility, isn't it? If it's wonderful to be one of his sheep, to be on his shoulders, to be carried safely home, to know that no enemy, no foe, no failure, nothing, nothing could ever cause me to end up in eternal perdition because I'm on his shoulders, I'm his sheep. So if that's a great privilege, think about the fact that it is a great responsibility. Because you see, blood as well as oil was put on the foot. And I think it is a reminder that our walk, if if I'm one of his sheep, what does he say about his sheep? My sheep hear my voice. My sheep follow me, don't they? My sheep follow me. So while we exult in the great privilege that it is to be his sheep, that we are secure, that we will never perish, it comes with a tremendous responsibility, doesn't it? Do people take note that we have been with Jesus? Do people see that we are living as a Christian? Do people see? You say, well, well, how would they ever know that I was a Christian? 
The Lord Jesus doesn't say, people will know you're a Christian if you give them a gospel paper. People will know you are a Christian if you speak very um, self-righteously and pompously. He did point to relations, didn't he? And he said, by this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have loved one to another. There are many people, I've heard this from a number of sources, there are many people who uh, at one time belonged to one of the world's major religions that denies the Lord Jesus as the Son of God. And many of them have been converted because they have been absolutely stunned at the difference between the hate and violence that they have seen in their religion and the love and the warmth that they have seen among believers. In fact, I was uh, when I was in Toronto, uh, I had the privilege of making some recordings. Um, there are some believers there that, um, well, they have access. They have access to uh, a free service that allows them to reach about 40 million people living in a certain area of the Middle East. And when we were talking and discussing about the situation in Egypt with the Muslim Brotherhood taking ascendancy, I asked, you know, concerned about the Christians there, I said, I, I suppose that there is a lot of persecution going on and it must be very difficult for the, the work of the gospel. He said, brother, people are being saved there by the handfuls. I said, well, how could that be? He said, because now they are seeing what they didn't believe before. Before they thought their religion was a religion of peace. Now they are seeing the violence and the hate that it spawns. And they're turning to Christianity and turning to the Bible and turning to Christ. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples. The, the people see by the way we walk, by our behavior, that we are his. Remember, blood was, was put on the ear. And I think that has to do with our will. That disciples hear him. They learn of him. And this is the idea of my will being subject to his word. Remember Paul, and these are remarkable words. Paul said to the Ephesians, you have not so learned Christ. He didn't say that's not what you learned about Christianity. He doesn't even say that's, what, that's not what you learned about Christ. He says, you have not so learned Christ. That the subject, the subject for the believer to study, to pour over, to grasp, to try to understand, and to emulate, is Christ. And Paul says that behavior is inconsistent with what you've learned when you learned Christ. So are we marked by a will that is subject to his word? There's something to me that's very frightening about this. Because I've had occasions where as I'm sure others here have had, where you're trying to um, have a conversation with someone who has determined to take his own way. And it doesn't matter how much of the Word of God is brought to bear on the subject. There is just a steeled determination not to bow to the Word of God. Now, dear young believer, here's something for you to pray. Pray that God will always keep you obedient to His Word. That's the blood in the ear. That's the mark of the disciple. But we're servants, are we? 
And blood and oil were placed on the hand. That has to do not with our walk or our will, but our work. This is now what I do for him. We're called to yield our members as instruments of righteousness. So do we labor for the Lord Jesus out of a sense of of gratitude or grudgingly? One way of testing that is just ask yourself, if um, if I were given a dollar for every track that I gave out, would I give out more tracks? If I were paid $10 for every conversation I got into where I talked to somebody about the gospel, would I talk to more people about the gospel? If I were paid $100 for every needy believer that I visited in the hospital, would I be out Sunday afternoon visiting like wild? Do we serve him with a sense of gratitude? There's a man named um, Barry Gottlieb, and he wrote a book titled Every Day is a Gift. And here is the reason for the writing of that book and the selection of that title. He said in his introduction to the book, When I was a younger man, I lived my life with a philosophy of what's in it for me. That all changed with one sentence. You need to get your affairs in order because you have three months to live at the most six. He described what it was like and what he went through and the thought that he only had just a few months to live. And then one day the phone rang, he picked it up, and the doctor said, the lab made a mistake, it's a misdiagnosis, you are not dying. Mingled with the the happiness of that good news, and the roller coaster emotions that all of this event caused, he said he came out of it with a deeper appreciation of life that every day is a gift and he wrote in his book I made the decision to treat every day as a gift as a gift if the Lord does not come you'll have 24 hours tomorrow you will probably um, be doing very much of what you had to do today there will be things that will seem monotonous there will be things that will seem pointless there will be things that will seem useless Tell me if this sounds monotonous, pointless, and useless. You are wakened up with a general call at about 3 a.m. You're pushed out into the fields. You work there for perhaps four hours. You're given some small thing to drink and uh, maybe a, a little something to eat, like a crust of bread. And then you work long and hard till noon. There's another general call and there's a break. You're given uh, perhaps some watered-down soup and maybe another crust of bread, and then you're back at work. And you work all through the heat of the afternoon, and you work until the sun goes down, and then you're given a little more to eat, and you shuffle to your your wooden cot, and you throw yourself on the cot, and you grab some sleep, and it all starts all over again at 3 a.m. the next morning. And one day on the short opportunity you have to take your muscle crying, aching body to a meeting you hear a man read a letter from the Apostle Paul and he says, slaves be obedient to your masters in all things not as men pleasers but as the servants of Christ You serve the Lord Christ, and from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. And you suddenly realize, well, I thought Paul was serving Christ. 
And I thought Epaphras was serving Christ. And I knew Peter was serving Christ. But I never thought I was serving Christ. Every day is a gift. And whatever you have to do tomorrow, and whatever comes your way tomorrow, if you do it as unto the Lord, you'll stand one day at the judgment seat of Christ and be rewarded for how you swept the floor, how you packed the lunches, whether with grumbling or with happiness, you did what you had to do. You will remember now, just so you don't think I'm exaggerating, you will remember that when the master gave the, the pounds, the giving of the pounds was based on the varied ability of the recipients. Talents, pardon me. The giving of the talents was based on the varied ability of the recipients. When he gave the rewards for what was done, the rewards were not based on what he gave them. When you're looking at the pounds and the talents, the reward was not based on what he gave them. The reward was based on what they did with what he gave them. It doesn't matter if you know somebody who can preach better than you, or has more gifts than you, or more gifts than you, and there are things you can't do but he can do. You see, it's not, it, it, it's not going to matter at the judgment seat of Christ who had the more ability given or who had the more gifts given. What will matter is what you did with what God gave you. And so you'll get a gift tomorrow if the Lord tarries and you're spared. And I hope that God will help you to realize the great responsibility of being claimed by the Lord Jesus. So notice that Amasai confesses that claim. And notice what it comes from. The Spirit came upon him. The Spirit came upon him. Now all of us have the Spirit of God. Unlike in the Old Testament where the Spirit would come upon somebody, we have the Spirit of God in us. And as the old preachers often ask us, it's not a question of whether we get more of the Spirit, but does the Spirit of God have more of us? Or better put, does the Spirit of God have all of us? Are we Spirit-controlled men and women? Now in the New Testament, the spiritual is contrasted with the material, isn't it? Paul said, if we have sown unto you spiritual things, is, is it a great thing if we reap your carnal things? So the spiritual was contrasted with the material. There are times in the New Testament where the spiritual is contrasted with the natural. 1 Corinthians 15, it is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. There are times in the New Testament where the spiritual is contrasted with the physical. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, they did all eat the same spiritual meat. They all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. And there are times where the spiritual, and this is where it ought to speak deeply to us, where the spiritual is contrasted with the immature and the carnal. And I, brethren, Paul said, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ. Now, my dear believer, dread this. Dread this. Dread never growing. Fear. Dread. Remaining where you are. Never progressing in God's things. It should terrify us to think that Paul would ever have to say to us, I wish I could speak to you as somebody who is spiritually minded, but you're, you're just like a babe. You understand that there are, in this sense of the word, there are three kinds of people in the world. I know that there are saved and lost, but in this context, there are three kinds of people in the world. 
There is the natural person. He has no ability and no desire to grasp spiritual things. There is the carnal person. He's saved, but he has no desire for spiritual things. And then there is a spiritual person, and he does have a desire. He is saved and has a desire for spiritual things. Paul was writing to the believers and telling them that they were not spiritual, but were rather carnal. A spiritual believer will bow to the authority of God's word. Paul told us that, didn't he? Didn't he say, if, any, if anyone be spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write are the commandments of the Lord. A spiritual person will want to bow to the word of God. So a spiritual believer will not be telling you how spiritual he is. He will be humble and caring for others. Remember in Galatians 6 when Paul told them that if anyone was overtaken in a fault, you which are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of meekness. See? You which are spiritual. There are situations where I can't help there are situations where, where I would blunder and hurt rather than help because it requires someone who is more spiritual. I don't know if I've ever mentioned this, but um, here. But there was a, a believer um, up in Connecticut some years ago, and um, he was had a, a sort of nervous personality. Um, he would worry very much about things, and he was in the hospital with some heart trouble. And I guess of all the things to worry about when you're in the hospital, that's one of the worst. So he was, um, he was in the hospital, and Brother Frank Tornacondisi visited him, read Psalm, he knew him very well, so to calm him and help him, he read Psalm 23, and talked to him about the Lord being the shepherd, and that he was in the, the Lord's hands, and the Lord was going to help, and, and prayed with him, and you know, really calmed him down, and, and just you know, had some sense of confidence uh, instilled in him. Now, I don't know, and I don't mean this critically because I, I, I love the man, but um, our brother Vic Illuminati um, was, you know, a little like a capo di capo, uh, all right? And so he walked in afterward, and uh, here's this man, you know, lying in bed, and uh, says to him, well, you know, we all have to die one day. He said, uh, Connie's sick, and... And Lydia, she's got a brain tumor and it's trouble all over the place and we're all going to die one day. Well, now it was like, you know, it was like a balloon deflating right in, right, right, right in the bed. He was just spiritual. I'm not saying that Brother Vic was not spiritual. I'm just saying that his approach was perhaps not what you would call good bedside manner. And spiritual believers will be marked by a care and concern. And I think that spiritual believers will be a blessing to others, won't they? Because Paul spoke in Romans chapter 1, longing to see the believers to impart to them some spiritual gift, to benefit and help the believers because he was going to be among them. So let me um, use the remaining moments just to think with you about this question. How is this accomplished? Sounds all wonderful. So throw yourself into this, give yourself to it, commit wholeheartedly. How? Well, think about the furtherance of God's work. Think about gospel work, the gospel of Christ. Think about the opportunities of giving out gospel papers and invitations and children's meetings and calendar and seat sower distribution. And by the way, I haven't come here to say you're not doing this. It's very easy to preach things in a place where it's already being done, which is why I'm finding it easy to talk about this. But let me try to strengthen your hands. This is part of what is commitment, where if that's being done, I, I want to be a part of that. I want to I want to help all I can to further the gospel. What about shepherd work? That's the people of God visiting the sick. The hospitalized, the bereaved, encouraging others, developing incipient gift and communicating to others what God has laid on your heart? What about 
deacon work, the work of the Lord, taking a Sunday school class, shouldering responsibility for gospel preaching, ministering in whatever way possible to others. What about even the manual jobs around the hall? Sometimes elders are burdened with things that deacons ought to be doing to free the elders to do what is more spiritual in character. Deacon work. There's so much can be done. Think about the future of God's work. The future of God's work depends on my, as I had mentioned earlier, learning Christ. I can be of no help unless my goal is to be like Christ and honor Him in my life. So, what is the purpose of your life? Now, we all have minor subsidiary, if you will, peripheral purposes. You may, for instance, say, well, I, I need to get the mortgage paid. I, I need to do this. I, I need my, I've got to get this done. I've... But I guess I'm asking, what is the overarching, what is the, the overall purpose in your life? What are you aiming for as a Christian? And I'm speaking to the young believers here particularly. What's your goal in life? Because unless I have that formulated in my heart, I will not somehow magically become a spiritual believer. I will not automatically grow to be able to be a help to the people of God. Is there any purpose? You know the famous story that involved Yogi Berra. Berra, not Bear. I'm in Yankee territory, so you will know who he was. And one day Hank Aaron came to bat, and Yogi always tried especially if it was a star or a very good hitter on the opposite team, he always tried to distract them when they were up the bat. So he's the catcher, so he's right there beside the batter. Hank Aaron stepped into, uh, at the plate to bat, and uh, Yogi Berra said to him, uh, Henry, you're holding the bat the wrong way. You're supposed to hold it so that you can read the trademark. Hank Aaron ignored him. Fought off a few pitches, and then drilled a home run into the left field bleachers. Dropped the bat, trotted around the bases, touched home plate, and then turned to Yogi Berra and said, I didn't come up here to read, and walked to the dugout. I didn't come up here to read. He came up here to hit. That was the purpose. What's your purpose? There's a thousand other things you can do in life, but what's your purpose in life? Because these men have come, and you know later in the chapter it gives their purpose. They came to make David king. And so there's a necessity on our part to buy truth, to learn God's truth, to to be able to understand God's word and bring it into our hearts to give ourselves to it. You know, that's the word that is used in Acts chapter 10 when it speaks about Cornelius' men. And it says that uh, a devout soldier of them that waited on him continually. That's commitment. That's the same word. They waited on him continually. It's the same word that's used in chapter 2. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. It's the same word that's used in chapter 6 when they say we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So, when you go home tonight, would you just have this one thing in mind? Are you ready to commit yourself to God's things? Are you ready to commit yourself to God's people? 
Are you ready to commit yourself to God's assembly? Are you ready to commit yourselves to God's truth? Yourself, to God's truth, to, to throw yourself into it. Rather than being a hitchhiker, just along for the ride. Rather than being a boarder, letting others pay the costs. Are you ready to commit yourself? Amasai made a confession of David's claim on his life. He said, thine are we. He expresses a commitment to his cause and on thy side. And then he states a conviction. His conviction is David's ultimate conquest. Your God helps you. And that's why they came to make him king. Now these are the men that crossed the Jordan with him. They shared his reproach. They labored to make him king. They loved him more than life itself. And they have come with this purpose in mind. We are going to give everything we have to make this man king. There may have been a lot of things in his life that were not perhaps the best way of doing things. C.T. Studd spent, I think, close to a dozen years away from his wife as they were laboring in two different places. So not everything about the way he went about the Lord's work was perhaps ideal. But you will remember his famous statement. By the way, C.T. Studd was one of what was called the Cambridge Seven. If you ever get hold of that small little book, it's worth its weight in gold. The Cambridge Seven. And it is seven men from Cambridge University who left their, their promising careers. And in the case of C.T. Studd, a vast fortune as well as fame. He was a, a famous athlete. And they went to serve the Lord initially in China. And C.T. Studd then would end up later on not only in India but in Africa. But after his conversion, this was what he said, and in some ways it was the motto of his life. If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Got that? If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice, and in the context I'm talking about tonight, no commitment, no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. This may never take you a square mile away from where you're sitting right now. But are you ready to commit yourself? To say like this Old Testament warrior said, Thine are we, and on thy side. I belong to you, and I want to work for you whatever way you want, and I want to commit myself wholeheartedly to your things and I hope that God will help us all to have this full joyous wholehearted commitment to his things shall we pray